and I don't need to bombard you with statistics to show you that the numbers regarding the religious beliefs of Americans are not becoming more and more similar or homogenous each year. Instead, they are constantly diverging into more and more different tribes and camps. And so the most popular way that many people handle these religious differences is to water down and say that they are all basically the same. Or maybe you've heard the phrase, there are many paths up the mountain, but they're all leading to the same place. Have you heard this? And the heart behind this kind of flattening of religions and beliefs, these comparisons of all religions, I think that it may have a noble source. I think what they're trying to do is keep the peace. Because one can't study the history of the world or even just the history of Christianity without noticing the near constant beat of a religious drum of some kind to motivate humans to go to war against other humans. This is what we have done. And therefore, the thinking goes, since humans have destroyed one another in the past, in the name of religion, then religion must have been the main problem. So rather than talk about the ways that we differ from one another and our beliefs about God or the gods and the afterlife, we'll all be much safer if we just focus on how our beliefs are the same. And I think there is some merit in this line of thinking. I think peace is good. I think war is bad. But I think it's based on a shallow view of history and a shallow view of human nature. And worst of all, I think this view is not being honest about the content of religion, especially when it comes to the message of Christianity. And I think this illustration is half right. All roads are not basically the same, but nearly all of them are. And all roads are not leading to the same place, but nearly all of them do. I think the illustration is mostly correct. However, I believe one of the best ways to draw people toward the Christian faith today is to teach them what other religions believe. That may sound really strange to you. I'll say that again. I think one of the best ways to draw people toward the Christian faith today is to teach them what other people who are not Christians believe. Teach them about the other roads in comparison with Jesus Christ, who is the way the truth, and the life. In fact, to help explain this, I'll stick with the mountain illustration, but I'm going to move from the idea of roads going up a single mountain to the idea of relief. And by relief, I don't just mean, oh, such a relief. I mean relief uh, geographically, the distance in height from the surrounding terrain. So how far is it? What is the relief from the top of the mountain to uh, the nearest thing when it comes to topography. And I, I noticed this difference. Uh, this week, I was in Colorado with the seniors on their senior trip. And as we were approaching Colorado Springs, I couldn't wait to show them all who hadn't been around before to show them Pikes Peak, this great mountain, 14,115 feet above sea level, it's a massive mountain. If any of you have been to the top, you know this. You may probably ruined your brakes taking your family down this mountain. But there was a problem. I couldn't identify Pikes Peak very well because Pikes Peak is surrounded by other gigantic mountains. Probably five times on this trip, I said, hey, look, kids, there's Pikes Peak. Never mind. And by the end of it, they're just like, yeah, it could be Pikes Peak, but we don't believe anything you say. You've said it. <laughs> five times. I couldn't discern which one was really Pikes Peak. And this was difficult for me because I spent uh, seven years of my life living very close to another mountain that was significant, 
about the same size. And this was Mount Rainier. It's just south of Seattle, Washington. Mount Rainier stands 14,410 feet above sea level, and it is in the Cascade Mountain Range. And while it is only 300 feet taller than Pikes Peak, it simply looks massive. It dominates the landscape for hundreds of miles. It's on every Washingtonian's license plate right there. It's on every beer can, t-shirt, photos of Seattle. And when someone asks you, is the mountain out today? You know exactly which mountain they're talking about. Because this mountain is not surrounded by other mountains. There is nothing around it at all. What's the difference? More than 300 feet in height, there's a massive difference in relief. There's nothing around Rainier but mere foothills whereas Pikes Peak is surrounded by other monstrous mountains. Today, the postmodern peacekeepers would have us believe that there is no relief, there's no real distance between the mountains that are religion. And that when you look at the makeup of today's religions, they are basically the same, and the religions that are ancient historically. They're all saying the same thing. And again, for the most part, what they're saying is correct. What does religion say? Wherever you are, whenever you are, it says, be a good moral person, follow the rules, be nice to people, and when you die, you will be rewarded by God or the gods or the universe or whatever is out there that is bigger than us. And so you don't think I'm just making this up. We'll go around the world briefly, and I'll just touch on some of the major religions in the world still today. First, we'll visit Islam, the religion of Muslims. What do Muslims believe? What is their uh, gospel or, or saving message? It is, follow the commands of Allah, given through his prophet Muhammad. And on Judgment Day, the two jinn or angels who've been following you around, watching you your whole life, like an invisible genie Santa Claus, they're making a list of your good deeds and your bad deeds. And then finally on Judgment Day, when you stand before God, they'll dump all of your deeds onto the scales and see if your good outweighs your bad. And if your good deeds outweigh the bad, then you enter into paradise. If not you enter into hell. That's Islam. Be good. Get rewards when you die. Another ancient religion, more ancient than Islam by far, is the religion of Buddhism. What does Buddhism teach? There are many, many forms of Buddhism. It's been around a long time. But original Buddhism said that there are four noble truths. The last Noble truth is that, wait a minute, there are eight more things. So they call them the Eightfold Path. And the goal is you follow the Eightfold Path. You have all of these things that you do in your life, priorities. And if you follow them properly, you will attain enlightenment. And when you attain enlightenment, once achieved, that will propel you out of this suffering life into what they call nirvana, which is just the state of absolute peace. However, if you do not follow the Eightfold Path well enough, then you get to, get to, have to come back again as something or someone else to try to get it right and reach enlightenment again, which we call reincarnation. Buddhism is much like the religion following it, Hinduism, another religion that began in ancient India. What do Hindus believe? Follow the rules according to your station in life. The station you were born into, that's what you stay in. That station has some rules which they call the Dharma. And if you follow the Dharma, follow the rules, then you will get, you know this word because it's bled over into pop culture, you'll get good karma. Yes, karma, Dharma isn't that cute. 
Follow the Dharma, get good karma. Karma simply means good outcomes in your life based on your deeds. What goes around comes around. That's the idea. And if you get, live a good enough life, you can eventually experience what they call moksha, which is the release from the cycle of reincarnation and enter instead into oneness with the gods. You lose yourself, you lose your individual being, and just become one with the gods of the universe. Be good, get good stuff at the end. So can you see how someone might say all religions are basically the same? Most of the time, they're right. I would even say this, and they wouldn't appreciate me saying this, but I would say the same is true of someone who might identify as a secular atheist. Because I think even the person who thinks religion is ridiculous and nothing awaits us after death except worms and decay, I think that person lives a very religious life. And what I mean by that is most secular atheists, they are not living as if nothing matters. They are not living as if there are no morals, no right and wrong. In fact, they often adopt a cause that is greater than themselves, oftentimes something related to politics or government or nature. They adopt that as their God or their highest good, and they become passionate, prophetic preachers of political activism. Do you know anyone who is eaten up with political passion and zeal? Do not speak names. Their religion sounds like this. If you don't believe and act on my political beliefs and morals, our nation or our world will be destroyed. We are hanging by a thread. Disaster is about to land on us if we do not change course as a nation with whatever cause. And I will use every social media breath in my fingers to show you how righteous I am and how evil my opponent is. That's evangelism, friends. That's religious fervor, and it comes in both uh, blue uniforms and red uniforms. And better yet, it's called salvation by works, or self-righteousness, or self-salvation. Every religion that humans have ever conceived, even the religion of anti-religion, is saying the same thing. If I live a good life, if I do the right thing, if I follow the rules, if I stand up for the right causes, then my life will be valuable in the end. And when you need all of the mountaintops to look about the same, you have to cram Christianity into this box as well. This is what our textbook does. I teach world history at Oklahoma Bible Academy. Yes, I will keep my day job. That's it. But in our world history textbook, when we come to Jesus and Christianity, this is how they deliver to the students the message of Jesus. And I'm using their verb here. Jesus taught that people could achieve salvation, which means forgiveness of sins and eternal life, by doing these things, by loving God, loving people, practicing humility, mercy, and charity. See what they did there? Did Jesus tell us to love God and love other people? Yes. Did he tell us to be humble and merciful and charitable? Yes, Jesus taught all of those things. Is that what he said our forgiveness is based on? Are these commands or are these the way of salvation? Our textbook says this is the way of salvation. Of course, they do the same thing with Moses. Obey the Ten Commandments and you will achieve eternal life. And so, see, all roads lead to the same place. All mountains are the same. And when you get down into the morals of all the different religions, you're going to see there's a lot of overlap with Christianity and Judaism and Islam and Buddhism and say, look, they're all, they're all the same. They all have the same rules even, basically. But you know well 
that that's not real Christianity, especially if you've been paying attention through the book of Romans or if you've been paying attention to anything at all that's happening here. The Christian faith is not one more works-based road up the mountain of salvation. The Jews treated the law of Moses this way in Paul's day, and he spent his very life in this letter of Romans and all of his letters fighting ferociously for the beauty of Christianity over against the normal, ordinary, pedestrian, ineffectual religion of self-righteousness that first century Judaism had become. Pastor Dylan said this in his sermon last week. He said, the greatest hindrance to true righteousness is trusting in your own. And Paul continues to argue for the glory of a Mount Rainier gospel compared to the pathetic foothills of salvation earned by right action. So uh, first thing we see in Romans chapter 10 verse 5 is that salvation this way is impossible. This is an impossible salvation. Be good, get rewards. In verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Paul's here quoting Leviticus 18.5, where Moses tells the people that obeying God's laws will bring them life. And he doesn't just mean uh, living life, he means uh, eternal life and all of that. Now we know that Moses never taught the people that salvation was by perfect obedience to the law. And we know, in fact, that the law of Moses contains sacrifices to atone for sins that God knew they would commit. If they were to be saved by obeying all of the commands, then why were so many of the commands kill stuff because you're going to break the commands? That was built into their religion from the beginning. Salvation by grace through faith. But Paul's not writing about the law from that original perspective. Paul's writing about the law from the other side of its fulfillment in Christ. And as we saw last week, that if Jesus Christ is the true end of all of the Old Testament sacrifices, Dylan preached last week, he's, Christ is the end of the law. If he's truly the end of the law, then those same sacrifices, trying to live by the Old Testament law and the sacrifices, have no power to remove the guilt of sin now. They're trying to use something that is no longer of use. If they're still seeking to be saved by obeying God's law, they are missing a key component of the law, and that is the sacrificial atonement for sin. Which means, if there's no longer any atonement for their sin in the law that they're following, that means they have to obey every square inch of the law perfectly to be right with God. There's no margin of error. There's no failure. There's no sin permitted. You have to be good all the way. In other words, the Jews had now successfully turned towering Mount Grace into the foothills of works, just like every other religion. And it's true. All of these religions are basically the same. In a recent book, an author named Christopher Watkin wrote a book called Biblical Critical Theory, and he calls this an N-shaped approach to God, lowercase n. And so in an N-shaped approach to God and salvation, lawful obedience, your good deeds go up to God, and after that, God responds to your good deeds by salvation coming back to you. So salvation makes the ark of an N. We do good, our good deeds go up, salvation and righteousness come down to us. Salvation is rewarded. Salvation is earned by humans. But last week, Pastor Dylan also said that salvation by our own works is bad news. Why is salvation by works bad news? Because it doesn't work. You don't have to think too hard to figure this out, right? Let's, let's go with the textbook and say, okay, 
obey the Ten Commandments and we can earn heaven. I've actually had someone say this to me within the last year. I'm going to heaven because I, I obey the Ten Commandments. Really? Okay. Commandment number one, worship God above everything else. Always, totally, fully. Does anything ever come between you and God? Then you can't obey commandment number one. Let's go to commandment number three. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't treat the name of God like a flippant, common thing. Have we ever done this? Commandment number five. Honor your mom and dad. Has anyone ever dishonored their parents? You're out. You're done. Number six. Don't murder. But Jesus says that if you hate someone, you're a murderer. Have you ever hated anyone? Then you're disqualified from heaven. Number seven, don't commit adultery. Jesus says, if you have lust in your heart, you are an adulterer. Number eight, don't steal. Number nine, don't lie. Number 10, don't covet. Don't want something that someone else has. Is anyone still standing before God at this point in the Ten Commandments? We're all cast down. You can't be good enough. Don't turn Christianity into a works-based religion like everything else. But our textbook also said that Jesus said if we follow the Sermon on the Mount, we can go to heaven. Yay! Here we go. Here's the standard. If you're not these things, you're condemned by God. You're not good enough, all right? Be humble. Be meek. Be merciful. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Have a pure heart. Always be a peacemaker. No anger. No lust, no divorce, no exaggeration. Lend everything that you have and don't expect it ever to come back to you. Love your enemy and pray for them. Don't be anxious. Did you hear me? Jesus said, don't worry. If you do, you're condemned. Don't be judgmental. Is everybody out? Did everybody get DQ'd? I didn't ask you if you were any of those things sometimes. I said, are you always those things? Is that who you are before God? We are not. And yes, when we read those teachings, this is biblical morality. This is the goal. We are followers of Jesus, not just believers in Jesus. We want to live this way. But are these rules the requirement to get in and to stay in the faith? Are these moral commands the requirements of salvation, or are they the fruit of our salvation? Because the difference is astounding, isn't it? The difference, the relief, is what separates Christianity from everything else. Christianity does not say, here are the rules, obey them. Christianity says you fall woefully short of these rules and you need someone else to live them for you. We cannot climb up to God on a ladder of good deeds. We need him to climb down here and drag us up to himself. And that is exactly what he's done. Salvation is not impossible, but it is possible. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul Quotes Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14 here, but he, he puts his own spin on it there in the parentheses. And his point in quoting this verse is to emphasize the fact that God is not trying to hide himself from us. God is not trying to hide the way of salvation from us. In the original context, Moses was talking about the law. He was telling the Jews, you don't have to climb up into heaven or go down to the bottom of the ocean to figure out what God wants for you. He's spoken his word to you. They don't have to guess or make up what the gods want from them like other religions did. They don't have to discern moral rules just using their consciences. 
They don't have to just start offering random sacrifices, just start killing stuff and hope that God will see how devoted they are to him so that he'll give them what they need. That's in-shaped religion. I offer up to God, he has to respond to me. But Paul's inserted something more glorious in the place of the law. At this point in salvation history, God hasn't just sent his law down to his people where it is available to them. He has sent his own son. Righteousness based on faith means that the work has already been done for you. And so Paul asks them, who needs to go up and drag God out of heaven? Nobody, because it's already happened. God became flesh. He took on human skin. He climbed down the ladder to rescue us by living a perfectly righteous life. Jesus Christ obeyed all the rules. But that's not all that he did. Paul asks, who needs to descend into hell and drag Jesus out of judgment? No one does because that's already happened too. Jesus bore God's wrath. He conquered hell and death, and he climbed out of the abyss to show that our punishment had been paid in full. Christopher Watkin, again, he calls this U-shaped religion. That means salvation, righteousness comes down from God and is given to us. It is a gift. It is granted to us. And what goes back up to God from us is a life of obedience and faith. God saves us. We trust him. We obey. Tim Keller passed away a few weeks ago, a pastor in New York City. I didn't even look for what book this quote came from because I'm pretty sure he says it every time he speaks and in every book he's ever written. But it's good. Like, I didn't even know where to quote it from. But he says this. He says, religion, and he's comparing religion to real Christianity. He says, religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Do you see the N? Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Christianity says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Because God has already accepted me. Now I obey him. Verse 8 again. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What Paul is saying is that salvation is not something that is far away and inaccessible and impossible but it is as close to you as your own heart and mouth. Self-salvation is impossible, but God's salvation by faith says salvation is right here and can be experienced now, this very minute, with what you've already got on you, your heart and your mouth. Do you realize that? What do I need to be saved? What you have right now, your heart and your mouth. And he'll explain what that means in a minute. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Again, the original context that he's quoting here is a little bit different. In the context, Moses puts God's law in their hearts and in their mouths. And Paul sees the law fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here, in the present day, in the New Testament, what is on the tongue and in the heart of those who desire not to save themselves, but to be saved by God. Instead, well, what is in their mouth? He says it is a confession. And what is the mouth confessing? That Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is God. And if you confess that, it says you will be saved by Him. What is in the heart? It says that it is a heart 
that believes God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, that is his death for our sin and his resurrection from the grave, he says you will be justified, meaning you will be made right with God. Paul quotes it twice, but in the second sentence he reverses the order, rightly, because any true declaration from your mouth is first believed convictionally in your heart. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, he said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, this isn't just saying you can parrot these words, all right? These are words that come from what your heart truly believes. In fact, um, some in the past in churches have really abused a verse like this. If you confess with your mouth, if you say these words, uh, they've used this verse as a mantra or kind of a magic incantation that if you just say these magic words like hocus pocus, you will automatically turn into a Christian. In fact, there was a time maybe... 30 or 40 years ago in the church, there was a big debate among evangelical Bible-believing churches. They called it the, the Lordship Salvation Controversy, and, and there were people in the church who believed that uh, you didn't really have to follow Jesus, you really didn't need to bear any fruit to confirm that you were a Christian, you just had to, to have believed and, and say these words at some point in your life, and then you were saved, prominent authors and pastors. If I gave you names, some of you would be bothered. I even heard some say that even if they later renounced Christ and walked away from the faith, if they said those words at one point in their life, then they're fine with God. But they're calling themselves an atheist. It doesn't matter. They said those words. I saw them walk down the aisle. I know that they meant it at that time. Scary theology really unbiblical, and kind of gave me a negative view, even of, of this passage of Scripture. But this isn't healthy, it's God's Word, and that's not what it means. But the fact that it's been twisted so often makes me a little bit nervous about it. But the point of the text is certainly not, say these magic words to become a Christian. It's not what's going on here. Another pastor John R.W. Stott said it this way. He said, this is not salvation by slogan, but by faith. That is, by an intelligent faith, faith, which lays hold of Christ as crucified and resurrected Lord and Savior. You don't just say words, but Paul is getting here to the heart of how to become a Christian, which that's, that's always an important question, right? How does someone become a Christian? Whether it's you wondering that yourself or whether it's you taking the gospel to the world, Paul's seeking to deal with that. And what the heart and the mouth are doing here should not be aggressively uh, separated. He says we believe in our hearts. And when you guys hear hearts, uh, I I'm afraid you get more cultural definition of heart, then you get biblical definition of heart. When we think about heart, we pose heart against what? Heart and mind, right? And so your mind or your thoughts and your heart are your emotions. Isn't that sweet? Yes, but not biblical, okay? So the idea of the heart according to the Bible, it's not merely the emotions, but when they say heart, they mean the totality of what a human being is. Your heart is the core of who you are. It includes your mind and your thoughts. Your heart includes your will and your desires, what you want. And it also does include your emotions and your affections. It's everything. The heart is the core of who we are in biblical thought. And what is the Christian heart doing? What are you doing with all of the core of your being? You are believing, trusting, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save sinners. And if that's what your heart is believing, then what kind of confession, what kind of announcement of true belief is coming out of your lips? It's a confession. 
saying something that is true. You are confessing that Jesus is Lord. This is the first Christian creed. They're putting Jesus against Caesar and saying, Caesar is not Lord. It says that on our money. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is God. We will worship him and not anyone else. To him belongs our worship and our honor and our praise. That's what it means to say Jesus is Lord. And Paul says, if this is what your heart believes and your mouth confesses, then Jesus' finished work All that was needed for your salvation, forgiveness of all of your sins, eternal life is yours. Don't miss the mountain. Don't miss the stunning relief. He is saying that salvation is yours, not because of anything that you did, but because of your faith in what Jesus did. The difference between Christianity and every other religion is stunning. Self-salvation is impossible, but salvation by another is possible. And Paul's told us how to receive this salvation by faith in what Christ has already done. But then we have to ask the question, Who is this salvation for? Is that the way to be saved for everyone? Is it just for the Jews for whom Christ came and fulfilled their Old Testament laws? Is it for the Gentiles back then who knew little to nothing about the God of the Bible? And even today, we don't divide people up into Jews and Gentiles, right? Is this the way for a Muslim to be saved, or a Buddhist, or a Hindu? Those who've grown up surrounded by and immersed in these different religions that are so far from the Christian gospel, what about them? Or even my neighbor, what about the person next door who believes that modern science has made belief in God and religion and the afterlife just an old-fashioned absurdity? Is that the way... For that person. And even beyond that, we might have some other questions going through the book of Romans. Um, wasn't Paul just talking about election and heart hardening and vessels made for destruction? I mean, like on the last page we were reading in this letter? Say we want to believe this gospel. How do we know if we qualify? Or say we do believe it. How do we know who to share it with? And so Paul ends this text that I'm preaching today with these words, starting in verse 11. Paul says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Paul's quoting Isaiah 28, 16, which promises that one of the results of faith In Christ, a benefit of a believing heart and a confessing mouth is that we will not be put to shame. And this is not talking about um, psychological shame. This is not saying you will never be embarrassed. It's not what's at issue here. It is a much higher level of shame than that. What he's saying, he's talking about judgment day. That on judgment day, when God gives to all human beings their just desserts, when he meets out what all of our works have earned us, some will come away with their heads held high. Some of us will come away at judgment day without shame before God, which should be impossible because of how sinful we are, but it's not. Because our salvation depends on what Christ has done, not on what we have done. So who are those who will walk away with their heads held high? Everyone who believes in him. Paul said it, a slightly different way in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does Paul mean by everyone? Guess what? You don't need to know Greek here. 
I promise. Verse 12. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Jews, Greeks, no distinction in salvation. There's only one God, and there is only one way of salvation, and it is the you version. God comes down to us, our faith goes up to him, not the in. And incidentally, there's really only one kind of person, right? With all the diversity that we talk about, and that's nice, the diversity of human beings, there's one way that every single one of us is exactly the same. There's one kind of person, and that is the sinner, the person in need of salvation, the person who cannot save him or herself. And it says God will bestow his riches of salvation. He's ready to pour them out. We sang about this. He's going to pour them out on all who call on him. Everyone who cries out to Jesus for salvation, God will pour out his riches And to finish it off one more time, in case we miss the point, like Peter at Pentecost, Paul quotes Joel 2.32 to drive it home. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. That phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, is really old. You start to see it early in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, calling on the name of the Lord is simply a synonym for worshiping Him. It says, in those days, people began to call on the name of the Lord. That means trust Him, cry out to Him for rescue, cry out to Him in worship. But in the New Testament, the meaning took on a little different meaning, although it's still worship. But the the phrase, those who call on the name of the Lord, actually became a synonym for a Christian. Paul could just write to a church, hey, I'm writing to the elders and the deacons and everyone in every place who calls upon the name of the Lord. Someone who calls upon the name of the Lord is simply called a Christian. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But God, who are the elect? I think his response would be, Don't worry about that. I'm not telling you. That's not information that you get or that you need. But Lord, whose hearts have been hardened? I think he would say, mind the task that I've given you. Go make disciples and watch me soften hearts and transform them. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, does this Offering of salvation, does it exclude people? Yeah, it does. If you don't call upon the name of the Lord, you will not be saved. What that means is that all other ways to God will not be accepted. And that's a tough word in a pluralistic society. As we've seen, all cultures, all peoples, they do have a way... But it's a salvation that's impossible, according to the Bible. It's the way of self-righteousness. No one will ever be able to survive Judgment Day before Jesus Christ based on their own righteousness. But don't miss how inclusive this message is. Who can come? Anyone. It is offered to everyone. There is no geographic, no cultural, no socioeconomic barrier. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So what do we do? We call everyone, everywhere, whatever their religion, whatever their past, whatever their preconceived notions, whatever their moral standing right now, we call them, we offer to them to cry out for salvation. So in conclusion, I just want to talk about two things briefly. First, I want to talk about your salvation. And secondly, I want to talk about your mission. Your salvation. Are you confused about whether or not you are a Christian? I realize that is 
very possible and nothing to be ashamed of. And we would much rather you be honest with where you're at with God than try to put on a smile and fake it and act like everything's fine. Are you confused? Are you waiting for some feeling to let you know that God is there and is pleased with you? I can't believe how many times I deal with people struggling over this, wondering, not thinking God is really there because they don't feel anything. And I ask them, I'm like, where in these pages have you ever been taught or heard or read that God causes you to feel something? Is it possible that God can work through our emotions? Yeah. But is it, is it one of his main ways to direct truth? No, it's not here at all. Are you waiting for an experience, a flash from heaven, an audible voice like the Apostle Paul heard on the road to Damascus? Are you waiting for a dramatic experience so you can be absolutely sure that you are converted? doesn't always happen that way. If you read Paul's testimony, it's really exciting. If you read what Paul says to Timothy, it's pretty boring. He says, Timothy, your mom and your grandma have always loved God and they've always taught you the scriptures and these scriptures can make you wise unto salvation. So when, was, when was, did Timothy become a Christian? I don't know, but Paul says, just follow your grandma like you already are. You love Jesus, keep going. Experiences differ. Or do you find yourself quickly leaving the good news behind and replacing with bad news, worried that your continuing struggle with sin proves you aren't really good enough to be a Christian? Becoming a Christian is not something you feel. It is not something that you achieve, and it might not be some miraculous, visible, and audible experience with God. It's not a magic incantation that you utter. It's not a sinner's prayer magically bestowing forgiveness. You become a Christian by faith. You hear the good news of what Jesus Christ has done regarding your sin dying in your place and raising from the dead, you hear this message and you believe it. Do you believe that you can't save yourself? Do you believe that your sin will always be in the way of your attempts at earning God's favor? If you believe that, I have really good news for you. You are correct. You cannot save yourself. Your sin is too deep. But God will save you. Call on the name of Jesus and be saved. Call on the name of Jesus and be saved. Salvation is so near. It's right here in your midst, in your heart, on your tongue. Call on the name of the Lord. And last, I want to talk about your mission. Does the Great Commission terrify you. Jesus' last command, go to all the nations, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'll be with you in spirit until I get back. Does the Great Commission terrify you? I know a lot of Christians that I think are in this place. Every new statistic about the religious diversity of America, about the rapid decline in church attendance, about the abandonment of Christian morality, every time we hear new information about how bad things are in our own nation, we're overwhelmed. It tempts us to despair or to hopelessness or even maybe shame in speaking of religious matters to those who don't believe. If that's where you are, I want to remind you that not only is Jesus their only hope for salvation, but I also want to remind you that our gospel is a beautiful thing. 
much more rewarding, fulfilling, and true to our needs and who we really are than any form of self-salvation, which holds them captive. And it is true. Most religions are the same. Be good and the universe will reward you. I got preached to, the message is everywhere. I got preached to by my socks this morning. Didn't even know it. Got a new pair of socks. They've got little bumblebees and honeycomb on them. And I start to put them on and I pull it up and inside the lip of my socks, what does it say? Be better. (laughs) Thanks. You see it everywhere. Be kind, be nice, be good. What are we saying? Do better. How do I know when I've been good enough? We've got to have a pretty shallow set of rules to convince ourselves we've been good enough. And so we keep working. We keep doing good. And we keep making sure everybody sees how good we are. Man, social media is helpful. We keep comparing ourselves to others and thrashing those who fall short of how good we are. But deep down, we know we don't even meet our own standards. Christian, we have words that give life. We have good news of a righteous God who sets souls free, removes their guilt and shame by taking it upon himself. We follow a God who causes good works to flow out of thankful hearts, not to earn his favor, but simply because we've already received his favor. Don't be afraid of the mission. Jesus Christ is not one mountain among many. He's not one path among others. He's the only one there is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just need to confess, I think many of us can really resonate with the in shape that we think that we can do enough and that that would be enough and yet there's still something in our souls that knows that it's not enough so we keep trying even as church people oftentimes we can fall into this air of kind of religiosity that says if we can just do a little bit more do a little bit better be better do better perform before you, somehow will be acceptable. And I pray that you would give us all ears to hear the bad news of religion. And giving us those those ears to hear the bad news, Father, would you please give us ears to hear the good news? That everything that is needed for our salvation doesn't come from our best efforts, but comes from Christ. We want to just thank you for sending your son, for the one who came down, for the one who lived perfectly, for the one who rose up. And we want to thank you for the good news that everyone who calls on his name will be saved. Would you give us an awareness, a conviction that there is no other name in heaven by which men and women can be saved other than the name of Jesus. And then would you prompt those who don't believe to call on his name? We do want to pray for our salvation. If there's wrestling with that, may we call upon the name of the Lord. We do want to pray for our mission. We know now that we should be people who go out and get this message everywhere. We're the good news people. Would you help us to be that? Following after Jesus. Again, the mission is not to earn something. The mission is because we already have salvation and we want others. Because of what you have done, because of your grace, we want to obey. Father, send us out. And call many in today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.